Welcome to Tonebenders, the sound designer's podcast. I'm rolling, and I'm spinning on my side. Yep. Here are your hosts, <laughs> Dustin, Timothy, and Renee. Welcome to Tonebenders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, is Timothy Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey, how you doing? Good. Uh, also with us today is Vanessa Ament. Vanessa is the author of the book, The Foley Grail, The Art of Performing Sound for Film, Games, and Animation, and a second edition of that is going to be coming out in April. Vanessa's also been a Foley artist in Hollywood since 1980. Her credits include The Dollmaker, Predator, Edward Scissorhands, which I absolutely love, Die Hard, and she's also got multiple television series under her belt, including Seventh Heaven, Charmed, The Secret World of Alex Max, and many, many others. In addition to all of that, Vanessa teaches, does voice casting, voice acting, and ADR editing. Hey, Vanessa, how you doing? I am just terrific. How the heck are you? I'm doing great. That's that's an impressive list. Well, I like to keep busy. <laughs> <laughs> So, Vanessa, I read the book, and first of all, it's a great book because, although I'm obviously the target audience because I'm interested in Foley, it's written in a way that I think anybody would really find, get a lot out of it, especially I would recommend it to filmmakers who don't know a lot about this whole section of the filmmaking industry. One of the things that you do that I find found really entertaining and informative is every time you introduce someone that has a comment or you tell their story, the first couple paragraphs you tell a little bit about their history and how they got into the industry. And some of them are uh, quite old and their path to the industry isn't necessarily relevant anymore, but other people's are more contemporary. And it gives you probably, I don't know, 20, 25 different uh, short little stories of how they got into the industry and gives you an idea of how basically I think everyone in the book came in in a different way. Some people, it was a family thing. Some people fell into it from acting. Some people were editors and a bunch of people were dancers, which I believe is the category that you fall into. And you seem to uh, think that your, your history in dancing has really helped you with your Foley. So is that still the case? Are most Foley walkers uh, have a dancing background to this day? First off, I'm glad that you really liked it, and I'm glad it's accessible. My goal with this um, book was to make it accessible for as many different types of audiences as possible, because I knew it was going to be the first book that really kind of opened up the world of Foley. I'm interested in the different approaches people have, because I'm fascinated by the culture of the Foley world, and I know how different we all are, and I think that your background and who you are um, affects the way that you approach the way you do Foley. So I was interested in people's background. And the funny thing about it is, even though I had worked with so many of these people, I really didn't know that much about their lives because when you're in the middle of working with someone, you don't stop and go, so tell me about your life and how you got into it. You're just busy doing the job. So when I got to play a different role and find out these things about them, it made them more interesting to me. And it made it clear to me why they worked the way they did. So in answer to, are a lot of them dancers? Really not so much. Some of them are, some of them are actors, some of them wanted to be filmmakers, some of them fell into it like I did because I'd been a, a nightclub singer and I'd had a degree in theater and I wanted to do acting and I'd been a dancer. I sort of fell into it like so many of them did. Very few people in my generation of Foley um, went into it with uh, the determination to. A few did. Most of them fell into it while they were trying to do something else in the industry. What's really critical to um, understand is that now some of the people getting into it are very determinedly trying to get into it. 
and they come into it from different backgrounds. So the new edition, um, I include people from other countries, and most of those people tried to get into it. Most of those people wanted into it. They didn't fall into it like so many Americans. That's the difference, and that's really interesting. So um, a lot of, a lot of um, how people get into it informs the way they do the Foley, and that's what I think is the most fascinating thing. So I still have some of those stories, and people don't have to pay attention to those stories if they don't want to, but I'm interested in people, I'm interested in their culture, and I'm interested in um, how it changes the way they approach Foley. So I figure if I am, maybe other people are too. The way the people came into it, it gives the book a personal touch. It's not just facts listed. It gives you each person's kind of history, draws you in, allows you to relate to people that you're reading about a lot better. Well, I think the reason that they don't, this is my opinion, is um, so much of what happens in sound is viewed as being a technical thing. And I'm really trying to disabuse people of that because those of us in post-production sound um, I think really don't perceive ourselves as technical workers. I think we see ourselves as artists and craftspeople. We love sound, and Foley artists definitely don't see themselves as technical workers. I can tell you that straight up. Very few people who do Foley think of themselves as technical workers. Yeah, the title's not Foley Prop Technician. Right. Um, they dub themselves, we dub ourselves artists. So... To be categorized as something technical really misses the point of what we do, and it addresses why we could never be replaced by something technical, because we are doing a sonic performance of what an actor is creating in a character, and we're also doing the hybrid of sweetening and enhancing and creating design effects. The essential motivation behind what Foley is, is it's adding character to whatever sound we're doing, whether it be a, a prop that a character is doing, or whether it be a footstep. Either way, you really don't want to be taking away from the essential purpose of Foley, which is creating the character of an actor or the character and, and enhancing what their prop or their footsteps are. But then the other thing, too, is even if we're doing a prop, what we're doing is the character of the prop or the character of the sound effect. So if we're enhancing a sound effect, even then, what we're doing is the character of it. We're doing the character of the body fall that's also being cut in or the character of the wagons that are in a Western. We're enhancing what sound effects are doing by adding the specific character that the sound effects can't do. So that's something that's never going to be replaceable with something that's technological. So when you're approaching that from a creative standpoint, um, how much input do you get from either director or whoever spotted the Foley, or how much of that do you just have to interpret for yourself on the fly based on what you're seeing? Well, you know, there's always how it should be done or how it is done or what time and money permit or what your culture does. For example, um, in the United States, the way that we approach it is if there's the time and the money, things are queued ahead of time. And when I was supervising Foley, I would queue it. The supervising Foley editor is supposed to do the queuing unless the budget's really tight, then sometimes the supervising sound editor will do it or the sound designer will do it. And there will be full out queuing. And that is done by having a spotting session with the director. The Foley artists aren't going to have a spotting session with the director. Um, so there's really not much director interference with what the Foley artists are doing. But there will be communication via the supervising sound editor or the supervising Foley editor um, about what the the um, wish list is from the director, if the director cares. Because sometimes the director isn't 
um, hooked in enough to care or know what Foley can do. So there are a lot of variables there. But an awful lot of what will happen in Foley is from the inspiration of what the Foley artist thinks can really make magic for the uh, film. And the more experienced the Foley artists are, the more they are trusted to do that. However, in other countries, it's variable. For example, Julien Nerda in France, who does a lot of European films, is the main person to do a lot of work in Europe. He's completely trusted on his own. His father did all of Jacques Tati's films. So Julien doesn't work with Q-lists at all. He doesn't like them. He doesn't like technology. He doesn't like anything mm -hmm. ahead of time. He works directly, for example, with Lars von Trier. He does all of his films. And he will work directly with him, and he'll get inspired, and he will do things completely ad-libbed on his own, very improvisational, and he and von Trier will come up with the ideas, and then Julien will execute them. It's a very different way of doing it, and that's because, um, having spoken with him, I can tell you he's very much of a right-brainer who works very much in the moment, and he's a delight, but he would drive the American, an American process crazy because we do more planning. Uh, but his work's beautiful. It's got a great deal of whimsy, and that's because that that's the French technique. So it depends. It depends on where you are. Other countries, they have their own processes because they have their own financial blueprint. They have their own business plans. Oh, Hollywood's very codified because it has this Fordist factory system that it had with the studio system, and we haven't really gotten that far away from it, even after all these years. So that's the most codified, and there's a pretty good system, a pretty codified system up in the Bay Area, but it's less codified than um, L.A. because it's had a looser structure and New York's had a looser structure and they work more closely with each other. So that changes it. And then, of course, the, the lower budget, the less time you have and there's a, a more close interaction with what you do, you might work more closely with the director. So it really does depend on who is the Foley artist, who is the director, how much money there is. But um, my, mo my biggest experiences have been personally with Los Angeles, and then I did a lot in the Bay Area. And then as I talk more and more with Foley artists, what I find is, I, you know, having grown up in the Foley system of, of Hollywood, I made the same assumption that all Foley artists in Hollywood make, which is this is primarily the way everybody does it, and we know what we're doing. Well, we do know what we're doing, but it isn't the way most people do it. The more you talk to people outside the Hollywood system, you find out that as many different people as there are in as many different countries as there are, there are that many different ways of approaching it. So sometimes there are cue lists, and sometimes there are not, and sometimes the director is involved, and sometimes the director is not. But in the Hollywood system, which is the one most people look at as the main system because we're the biggest system, there are cue sheets that you follow and the director is not on the stage and we have a Foley editor that's kind of the go-between to make decisions on what Foley works and what doesn't after it's been shot. And the supervising sound editor has had a spotting session with the director so that he or she does know what the wish list is and that's filtered down to the Foley stage with cue sheets so that we know what is expected of us and then we like to throw in our own sense of artistry and, and um, interpretation and we have been hired because they know our sense of artistry and interpretation and 
and they trust it because we're all different. Now, I know I just gave you a bunch of information, and we can unpack a bit of it if you want, but I'm just trying to give you the big picture so that you can see where you want to pick apart some things. I think that's excellent. Um, the specific thing, I, I guess I'd like to know how you prefer to do it um, within your personal experience. The way that I approach Foley personally, and we're a much smaller facility, obviously, there's only a few of us. And when we do feature films, I will tend to spot it. And I will also be the artist and I'll have someone else come and cut it. And when I spot it, I'm mostly spotting for props because what I do is I'll, I don't have a dedicated space that's nothing but Foley. Our, our, our spaces have to be multifunctional. And so basically when I'm going to sit down and, and lock off a room for a few days, I have to go get enough props that are going to work it. So that's specifically the way that I approach it is I, I'll spot it for props and, and I'll spot it broadly, but I won't spot it too specifically. And that works for me. When you're in total control of it, how do you like to work? Well, I spot very specifically and I spot very clearly on the tracks that will work best for editing and then passing it on to the re-recording mixers because one thing I like to be very clear about is you have to think about who's going to get your material after you because it's a collaborative art but it is uh, horizontal and so um, you know while we're all collaborating we have to think about who's coming after us so I spot very specifically I spot in specific tracks. I try to keep food groups on the same track, you know, metal on one track and paper on the same track. So I cue very specifically. I like everything really planned out because I'm thinking, because first off, um, I like to be free enough to be completely right-brained on the Foley stage. And the only way I can be completely right-brained on the Foley stage is to, when I'm cueing, cue very left-brained and cue very carefully and specifically because on the Foley stage, since I'm primarily a right-brainer, I can be very free to just be creative and go and not have to think too much about the detail because I've already planned it. Right. I also cut, so then when I'm cutting, I've already, I already know where my weaknesses were when I, when I shot it. And my sync tends to be very strong, but I'll already know where the weak spots were when I shot it. So I, can, I know where I need to go to fix it. Can I ask something specific on how you deal with footsteps? Mm-hmm. Because there's basically, there's, there's three variables, right? There's the character, there's the shoe that they're wearing, and there's the surface they're on. How do you approach that? Do you do it character by character all the way across, or shoe by shoe, or surface by surface? I do character by character because that's just the way it works for me to stay in the space of the actor's character. So I will, in a reel, I mean, obviously, in, in whatever the limited... I mean, if you're working on 20 minutes at a time or back in the old days, we had a 10-minute reel. So I would do 10 minutes of the one character, then go back and do 10 minutes of the next. That works best for me because I stay in the space of the one actor, the one character, and I catch everything they do. Unless there's extreme surface changes, then I might stay on one surface. Some people, however, are more comfortable getting one surface out of the way and switching shoes. I prefer to um, stay with a character and if I'm doing backgrounds stay with one shoe all the way through then go back and do another shoe of backgrounds all the way through. I don't like saying so much the way I do it because then everybody listening is going to think that's the way to do it. One of the things that I really try to disabuse people about is to think that there's a rubric because I'm very anti-rubric. Everybody has a different way of learning and a different way of approaching and 
as many people as there are in Hollywood that are really great at doing this, there are that many different ways of doing it. So while that's the way I like to do it, um, some people really like to do a specific shoe all the way through or a three-minute spot all the way through and get all the props done that way and then do the next three minutes and, the, you know, scene by scene. So I tend to like to do the shoe because I have a hard time jumping back and forth between shoes. I feel like that takes a lot of time for me. And so I'll pick a dominant shoe, you know, and typically that, that'll link up with the character fairly consistently. Not always, obviously, but... But I'll pick a shoe and I'll just try and knock that shoe out across all the surfaces and then I'll switch shoes. And I think that that's absolutely fine. In fact, you'll notice when I write, I don't focus so much on the way I do things. That's why I like to inter- to introduce a lot of different people and the way they do things. If there is a criticism of my book, when I've had it be criticized, it's been, oh, they talk about, she talks about all these people and what they do as though what I should be doing is just giving a how-to book. And I know some people like that because they like the idea of this is the way you do it. I just want to know how to do it so I can get my movie done. But there isn't one way to do it. And if I tell you my way to do it and it doesn't feel right to you, then you're going to get upset because it doesn't work for you. And there isn't one way to do it. That's just the truth. There isn't one way to do this. My way is the way um, a woman who's five foot three and is built the way I am with my particular background in acting and singing and being a, a, a classically trained musician who sings jazz and writes music and was a dancer and is extroverted and loves whimsy and humor but who has a very naturalistic style and if I need an over-the-top sound I'm gonna have a partner who does more over-the-top stuff because I tend to be I mean everybody has their strengths and so the purpose of my book, not only is it to be as comprehensive as possible and to keep adding material as I find new things, but to really emphasize you need to find what your strengths are because it's just like we all have different styles with the way we dress or the way we walk or the kind of house we like. or the, It's the same. It is art. It is not a technique. It is not technological. It is art. So with any art... As long as it's working for the story world of the movie, you need to find your own way to, to get there. And it's a, it's, a, it's a real indication of impatience that you want me to tell you exactly how to do it because then you're telling me that you think there's a right way. And that's what our society, this is why I rail against rubrics. We've been taught that there's a right way to do things. And except for math, and even then I wonder, there really isn't. You know, drive on the proper side of the street, folks. That's about it, you know, but um, and park properly. But there really isn't. And I, I know Foley artist friends that would disagree with me. I have some very good Foley artist colleagues in, in California who will absolutely disagree with me. And they will say, and I can think of a couple in particular, who would vehemently disagree with me and think that there is absolutely one way to do it properly. And we would disagree. I don't think there is one way to do it properly. I think that there are a lot of different approaches that will all work beautifully. And that's why there are different sound editors that like to work with different Foley artists and different Foley artists who have different approaches. That's why I don't think there's one best Foley artist. I think there's a bunch of them that are really incredibly gifted and they all do it really differently. I like things understated and very naturalistic and to sound like production. Hollywood tends to like things a little more hyper real and bigger than life. Um, so I was always being told to mic it closer and do it louder. And I thought, boy, that goes against my aesthetic sense. In New York, 
They like the mic further away and a little more naturalistic. But that's because Alicia Birnbaum, who started the, the big sound house there, Sound One, was a production sound mixer in Israel, and he's the one that basically started the sound aesthetic in New York. And since he had been a production sound mixer, liked everything to sound like, say it with me folks, production. So the sound aesthetic in New York tends to be further away and more naturalistic and to sound like it's in production. I happen to like that, but it isn't the normal aesthetic in Hollywood. So I'm, I'm sometimes really grateful that so many people allowed me to work as much as I did consider, considering that while I like to think I'm flexible, I did tend to like to do things more naturalistic than I think is the norm in Hollywood, which tends to be a little more over the top than I am. Now, would they actually listen, hear some tracks and say, you know what, you got to do it again, your mic too far away? Would that actually happen? Oh, yeah. Um, my natural tendency would be to have it just fit in like it's production. And most of the time, that would be absolutely fine with everybody. But, but I would say 20, 25% of the time, the mixer would say it needs to be closer. And um, if I really trusted the mixer, I'd say, okay. And if I wasn't really sure, I'd say, are you sure? Because blah, blah, blah. And they'd say, no, there's not going to be enough level or something like that. And then I'd go with it. Um, but I wasn't always comfortable with it. Um, but it's collaborative and I'm not going to really fight it because they know things I don't know. You know, they know things I don't know. And I'm not going to fight them about it because they know more about microphones and uh, what's going to happen at the dub than I do. At least early on, that was absolutely true. And later on, I knew they were right, that that's what was going to happen on the dub. That's cool. Uh, you know, I've, I'm still experimenting a lot with regards to mic position um, and mic choice and all of that. I haven't found something that I'm totally in love with yet, and I'm really trying a bunch of different drastic things. Um, I'll get there eventually. Yesterday, I was taking a break, and I turned on television. I saw, like, the last 40 minutes of Chain Reaction, which I've never – I haven't watched it since I worked on it. And um, I really thought it was a pretty decent movie, and I was kind of surprised it didn't do better at the box office, because in a lot of ways, it's a pretty good movie. I enjoyed working on it because it had a lot of different challenges sound-wise. And Keanu Reeves is in it, and you know he was really starting to kind of break out and be a more natural actor in Chain Reaction. I was listening to the mix of The Footsteps. The mixers are very, very good, but I thought, boy, you know, I just think they're mixed. the footsteps are mixed too loud. I just think they're mixed too loud. They didn't lay in like production to me. And that's the L.A. aesthetic. Yeah. But for me, I would have bumped them down about 20 to 30%. That's just almost always the way I feel when I hear my Foley mixed in Hollywood. I always feel like the footsteps are, you know, a little louder than I want them to be. There have been a few movies where they've been mixed down enough so that I've been happy. But for the most part, I've always felt like they're louder than I want them to be. And I, I, <laughs> I just can't get past it. What films do you look at for uh, inspiration, for Foley reference? I mean, you look at these films and you say, you know what, that's what I'm aiming at right there. That's what I'm trying to do. Wow, that's interesting. Hmm. I'd have to think about that. You know what, the ones that I personally watch for Foley is a lot of the Asian flicks. Um, I think Asian cinema does Foley really, really well. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm always aiming at what they're doing. Because you know, a lot of it is the aesthetic, too. There's a lot of negative space in Asian films. Right. Um, and so there's a lot more just opportunity for Foley to have some nuance to it. Well, when you say Asian, though, you really have to di- differentiate between Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and Indian. It's true. Because they're very different. Yeah, the Koreans go nuts. <laughs> you might be talking about Hong Kong or 
which is very slick, or you might be talking about, and you can't be talking about Bollywood because that's completely... No, yeah, I'm not talking about Bollywood. I am talking more kind of the slicker, more Hong Kong type films. And a lot of the Foley work is not necessarily done there. I think some of the Foley work on a lot of those, I think Crouching Tiger Foley work was done in America, wasn't it? Yes. So, but I still, it still reflects that Asian film aesthetic to me that I really personally look at for uh, inspiration. I think, I think so. I also just like a lot of what I hear coming out of New York. But I also love some of the stuff that's happened in L.A. that's just had a more subtle feel to it. And, and probably some of the stuff that I've even done that's been mixed really to lay in beautifully, if I could think about it. But some of the work I did, I look and I go, wow, that was a tasty moment. But, of course, I'm very critical of my work. Um, you always want to go back and, you know, I, I like the, my work I like the best of mine is the most subtle. The stuff that I just go, wow, that sounded like production. Then I'm really, you know, really thrilled with it. Um, but I'm very proud as some of my friends have done some beautiful work. And some of these people I've just met from other countries. I'm listening to their work and going, wow, that's, you know, really lovely work. A lot of our listeners are uh, sound post-production, sound design. What is a good tip to give someone who has never recorded fully? Uh, who's used to recording voiceovers or sound effects outside of the Foley range. What would you say to them from the perspective of a Foley walker to work with you? I don't mean technically mic placement, but is there a way that you would interact with a Foley artist that would be different than maybe a VO artist? What's similar is that Foley artists are artists just like actors are in that they relate more to the characters in the movie, most of them, not all of them. I can think of a few Foley artists that I don't think relate to the actors in the movie at all and really relate to being sound people. But most Foley artists, I think, really relate to the actors in the film. So if you just remember that they're relating to the actors in the film and they're thinking about how to do their performance sonically and that they're really getting caught up in the, in the drama and the story. And so you can start just by treating them like the performers that they are. The second thing is um, to be sensitive to the fact that they probably don't know that much about the technology that they may, but they may not. Some of them really don't care. And the third thing is that um, they tend to be really independent and they want to work with the you as the mixer. They want to work with you. They don't want to be told what to do, but they really do want to be given guidance about what it is you need with the microphone and where you need it placed and how you want it done. It's a team, it's teamwork. So rather than be totally beholden to the whims of what the actor's doing or the ADR editor and the director on the stage and the picture editor on the stage, you're a team. And so the better that you can work as two people really care or three people really caring about each other and trying to help each other be great, the better. Microphones are different for Foley than for ADR, and that's something you have to really become aware of. Microphones that you need to use for ADR will not be the same as what you're using for voices. And I'll tell you right away that I have found that the ubiquitous microphone for Foley tends to be the uh, Sennheiser 416. I am not saying that everybody uses the Sennheiser 416, but it is absolutely all over the world that I, of everyone I interviewed and it wasn't all over the world but it was in many countries the most popular microphone and certainly in the United States the 416 is the um, oh I would say 60 to 70 percent of the time the default microphone for just the general microphone you should have a 416 and then 
microphones of your choice in addition. But be willing to be flexible with microphones to see what you can get and um, work with a Foley artist as a partner so no one's the boss. We have a saying in Foleydom that what you do behind your side of the glass is your business and what we do on our side of the glass is our business and we're working together. And it's a partnership. No one's the boss. It's a partnership. So I really have to have the freedom to be creative and figure out what I think might work. And I need you, the, the mixer, to listen to what I'm doing. And then I'm going, okay, how does that work? I don't need you to be the boss of me. And I need your input. So we're partners. We, we really have to work together and realize that the sound's the thing. And it isn't about anybody's ego. Well, a good Foley artist, if you're working on something, how long does it usually take to work through any individual move where you don't have it on the first try usually? If it takes more than five or six, is that too many? Or if it takes more than 10 or 20, is that okay? Well, I mean, beginners are going to take a few times because they're still learning uh, sync and sounding natural. And, you know, they're going to have their nerves and they're going to be judging themselves and they're going to be listening to what they're doing while they're doing it. And they're going to not be relaxed and their body's going to be tense and they're going to be afraid. And everybody has a learning curve. So I don't know. I'm not asking um, for a specific number. I'm just thinking ballpark. I know me personally, if it takes me more than six to eight, then I feel like I've, I'm, I'm really swimming real hard. You know what? I absolutely refuse to answer that question. I'm too much uh, someone who wants to give someone the space to find their way of doing it. Yeah, I get that. If you put, I mean, I will say if you're doing ADR and you make an actor read a line more than five times, you're not going to get anything better. If you, if you have, I, that I will tell you. As, have, as have someone who's shot ADR, after the fifth take, if you keep making them do it, they're not going to give you anything better because they've given you everything they have. It's a little different with Foley because they may not have found the right sound yet or they may not have worked through their subconsciousness depending on how they operate because it's different. It's not the acting and it's not the line. It's making friends with alien pieces of matter and trying to find the right sound and whether or not they're comfortable with you and whether or not they're comfortable with themselves and whether or not they're comfortable with the acoustics of the room and it takes the time it takes and so at, at a certain point you're going to sense whether someone's frustrated and you just need to go on yeah when i run into that situation i if i find myself getting frustrated in the room i definitely i'll either really radically switch the prop or we'll just move on and try and come back to it you made your own answer. When it starts feeling like, you know what, this is just not working, either let's go with that or let's come back and do it again later when I'm not so in my head. Because the more you start thinking, the worse it's going to be. Yep. So there comes that sweet spot where you're just in a Zen moment and everything's working for you. But the other thing, too, is it takes time to get fully at a point where one or two takes is going to do it. You do get to a point where um, you get so at ease with yourself in Foley. Um, it takes one or two years of doing it pretty regularly before you're really good. And it takes five years probably before you're amazing. Where one or two takes and you move on. And you just sort of know. You just sort of know what to pick up and what to do or how to walk it. And only now and then will you start having a problem with the take. And I think the best advice I would give to anybody is to be easy on yourself and realize that just because you know how to operate a, um, an object in real life doesn't mean you're going to be able to operate it looking up at a screen with a microphone on you and keep your breathing quiet and not creak your hips and not move your body and do it in an, un, in an awkward position and have it work right and have it sound right against picture. 
So it, it's an odd thing to do, and people should, you know, not expect themselves to, I mean, it's a very unrealistic, bizarre job, and you, you need to understand that. You're training yourself. It's like, being a, it's like being an athlete. You have to train yourself the way any athlete does, except that you're not going to be as physically fit. But, you know, it, it, you're training yourself in a very specific, weird art, and it's a physical art, and it's a mental art, and, and a creative art. Everybody's different. I mean, footsteps were much easier for me than for most people because I'd been a dancer and because I was um, uh, musical and I had been an actor. And so a lot of that was easier. They're so hard for me. Footsteps are so hard for me. Because if you haven't been trained in some kind of physical, coordinated, gross body movement thing, how can they possibly be easy? They were so much easier for me. Props were, props were hard for me because my fine motor movement with my hands is harder for me. I've been playing piano for a very, very long time, and I'm a songwriter, and I cannot play piano worth beans because my fine motor movement's not good. My son, on the other hand, is really, really good at piano, and his gross motor movement's not good. So everybody's different. You just have to be patient, and there comes a point where it just starts feeling good. And you start feeling confident. And if footsteps are the thing that are hard for you, Renee, then you start practicing in front of your TV and you start practicing watching people walk down the street because after a while it starts feeling really good to do a walk. It just feels amazing. Yeah, I've definitely not reached that point. I have reached that point, I think, with Prop Foley. And I totally love what you're saying about giving yourself space to find it. The the thing that I've definitely found with regards to prop folly, the biggest mistake that I was making early on was I'd, I'd be in the room and I'd have the exact prop and I'd be looking at it on the screen and I'd do the move and it looked just like it looked on, on, on the screen and it wouldn't be right and it wouldn't work. And I'd be so confused because I'd say, this looks just like that. The issue was not how it looked. The issue was how it sounded. And sometimes I would have to do something in my mind, dramatically different to make it sound exactly like it looks on the screen. You know, you bring up a really good point. I don't know why people think it's what it looks like. We're designing a sound. So we're designing sound components. It doesn't matter what it looks like. I had a pair of shoes that sounded like the most beautiful sounding, expensive high heels, and they were these ugly, ugly creepy looking blue old ratty shoes with really thick heels and they sounded like $500 beautiful Italian stilettos that were five inches high. You're listening for the components of the material. You're listening for the kind of wood and the kind of metal and the kind of silk. You're listening. So it isn't, you, you should just let go of what it looks like and you just shut your eyes and you listen to what things sound like and you put sounds together and you put things against other sounds to see what they sound like resonating against something else. It doesn't matter at all what it looks like. I have some friends in Hollywood that get the exact things and they need to have the exact things on their Foley stage. I don't understand that at all, but that's what they try to do. And that's the way they work because that's the way they think. I don't think like that. I learned from an old guy by the name of John Post and I write about him in the first book and he's passed on, unfortunately, but he was one of the first people I worked with. And you know, he just pick up two things and put them together and make a sound. And that's the way I work. It's like, and he had been a sound editor. So he was used to putting sound library sounds together and layering sounds. So it didn't matter what it was. It's just, he's listening to sounds. So that's the way I work. I'm just listening to sounds to see if they work. 
I don't care what they are. Yeah, I've got a couple of props that are just so versatile. They just turn into so many different things. I, I can't let go of them. And I'm always looking for more. You're always out there in the world trying to find this one thing that's, that's going to make a sound that you don't have yet, that you don't own yet. Right. And that's the fun of it. I still have things from 1980, from when I was doing the Dallas TV show, you know, at Dallas, the first Dallas that I was doing, which was right after JR was shot, like three episodes or four episodes after JR was shot. And I love... You know, I have a deadbolt that I used for guns in television before sound was good enough where it doesn't sound good anymore as a gun, but it sounded great as a gun on Dallas because we were working with Mag and it was just, you know, mono on TV. And I, I still have it, you know, and it's fun to collect all these different odd sounds and just go, okay, maybe I'll use that someday. It, it's just junk. It's just sound components. Do you ever go junk store shopping? Well, right now I'm writing a dissertation, but did I? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I have a storage still full of props. Well, I have to tell this funny story. Okay, so so this is this is one of those really funny um, only only in the Foley artist world story. Years and years ago, I was living in Santa Monica. I had a hatchback car, and um, I had to go work on a TV show with uh, in a place called Horta Editorial. And I I think we were working on a Hill Street Blues or maybe a Lacey, a Cagney Lacey. I don't remember, but anyway, I put my two bags of, sh of stuff that I take with me in my hatchback the night before because I had to get out really early in the morning and traffic's bad in LA and I got up the next morning and uh, they, my hatchback had been broken into and my two bags of prop stuff were gone. And I'm going, oh man. So I had to go to work. So I had to go to work and use everybody else's shoes and props and I'm bumming because somebody broke into my car and stole my two bags of junk, right? <laughs> and. I mean, it's like, well, I was stupid enough to put my stuff in my car, and I didn't have a garage. I was in a, in a carport. So it was a stupid thing to do, and I paid the price. Well, you know, I have like a sixth sense about some things, and I thought, you know, somebody who breaks into your car in Santa Monica is looking for something they can sell for drugs. They're going to open up those two bags, and they're going to see just junk, and they're not going to be able to sell that stuff for drugs. So they're going to dump it. So I'm going to look at the dumpster by my apartment building when I get home. <laughs> so I got home that night, and every single thing was in the dumpster by my apartment. Wow. So I am climbing into my dumpster, pulling out absolutely every single thing, and my two purple bags, because I love purple, and there, there they are. Every single shoe, every single prop is in my dumpster. I pull it all out. I put it back in my bag. It's all there. And I'm thinking to myself, what did this person think? They're breaking in and they're pulling out this stuff and they're probably thinking, this person's worse off than I am. You know? <laughs> what is this person up to? <laughs> There's a great story in the book about the Foley artist that goes into the butcher all the time to buy liver and the people behind the counter don't know what she's doing because she's always listening to the liver. Right, that Joan Rowe. Yeah, that was for uh, E.T., I think, to make a liquid, friendly liquidy sound. That's what... Uh, Chuck had told her, I think, to get that Steven Spielberg wanted a friendly, liquidy sound for E.T. And so Joan Rowe, who's, you know, a very talkative, uh, fun, friendly person, would go into the local deli and get, and you know, it would get old and smelly and not, sound, and not stay fresh. And she had to go in there and she'd go in in her fully clothes and she'd go in and listen to get the right sound. And the guy would say... He actually did say to the person that was shopping there, that's, that's the lady that listens to the liver. <laughs> that's a true story. Wow. While we have you here, can I ask you about Edward Scissorhands? Uh-huh. Just anything at all. I would just love to hear any story about Edward Scissorhands at all. 
the, the one that I'm fondest of is that I was really close to popping, being pregnant when I did it. So I was quite a sight on the Foley stage with this huge belly, having to sit down and do cues and then get up and do cues and uh, wait just a minute, let me just get down, wait, and try to work myself down to the ground. Wait, I can get there, I can get there and try to get down and do a cue. Okay, wait, no, I'll get up, I'll get up, I can get up, I can get up. You know, this big, huge belly. I think that was the first time a pregnant woman had ever been on the stage doing Foley cues. It was not the best. <laughs> But um, yeah, it, was, it was quite a sight. People like to know how we did the hands. The prop that was made had motors to make the hands, the fingers move when they would do specific kind of handling, not when they would just sort of flail, but when they would actually pick things up. You would hear it on camera going, <laughs> you know, they were motorized. And so that had to be removed. And um, so I had to audition several different ways of making them work together in order to design what they were going to sound like when I did that. And so I used um, a couple of different pairs of scissors and some knives together to get the right kind of clinking and zinking sounds. And then um, I think on quarter inch, because we, we were still working with Mag back then, I did several different kinds of motions and movements and then let, um, I believe it was Dave Stone and maybe Ed, and maybe Richard Anderson also listen, did some various movements to kind of get the feel of what it would be like. And then we settled on the motion. And so that was the way I did it. But every single time that he's doing the motion, it's me holding these scissors and these knives exactly the same way every single time and moving them. And so I had to remember exactly which hand held what and what kind of motion I was doing. And of course, he's you know, every scene he's in, we have to do that. That's kind of an interesting story. And one of my favorite things that um, I loved Johnny Depp's performance in that. Um, he reminded me very much of, of Harry Langdon, the silent film actor comic. Um, with the big eyes and sort of always sort of sad, surprised look. I watched his performance and I thought, man, this is just such an amazing performance that this guy's doing. And I remember when he goes into Kim's room and he looks at the waterbed and he presses the waterbed and the waterbed moves up and down. And then he starts mimicking the behavior by bobbing up and down and watching it with those big eyes. It's just little moments of that film. And what we did for the waterbed, we they had some edited waterbed noise, but then also I used a hot water bottle with water in it to get sort of the glup, 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 and also the squeaks of it to get kind of squeak sounds whenever he was on the waterbed. And um, I remember that those were moments. And I have a scene that I use a lot to teach um, A-side, B-side picture editing and, and continuity with Foley when someone isn't in the scene but you have to keep them alive off camera and that's the eating scene when he first visits Peg and her family and uh, Peg and her husband and her son are eating on one side of the table and he's on the other side and I show the A and B editing side and how you have to keep the eating and the dishes alive on the side you're not seeing while you're watching say Edward trying to eat like the pea and the family is there, but they're not really there because it's just Johnny Depp there. But you have to keep the sense of the family there with dish movement eating, and that's Foley. Yep. That's one of the critical things Foley can do that really helps a lot is to off-camera keep alive 
the dishes and a little bit of, of, of scrape noise, you know, um, cutlery on dish scrape noise, so that there's a sense that they're there eating while he's trying to struggle with the pee. And then when you look at the family, you've got to still hear him eating and scraping because you've got to get a sense that they're there even when that particular actors are not there while they're shooting the close-up of the family or the close-up of Johnny Depp. And that's a very good scene for demonstrating a, a use for Foley that some people don't think of, and that is off-camera action to keep something alive while we're watching just close-up one part of a scene. And I like to use that for teaching that because a lot of people don't think about that. They only think about doing what they see on screen and not keeping action alive off camera. An undergraduate student who's just learning film, if they're doing their very first sound project, as soon as they see somebody walk and as soon as they're off camera, they stop walking. They don't walk them out the room. They just stop walking as soon as they see them leave the scene. So you have to teach them, well, no, they're actually still walking. They're just, not, they're just off camera. You have to walk them out the room. And, and they don't make that connection unless you teach it. Vanessa, you have been absolutely awesome. I've loved talking to you. Oh, well, thank you. This has been fun. Yes, we need to do more. We need to do some ADR and, and voice casting stuff later. That would be great. I'd love to. Because I want to pick your brain on that, too. That's hard. Yeah. Well, I really enjoy that, too. And it's, I'll tell you, working with people who are actors and have only their voice to project an entire idea and, and character, that's really, you know, these people are truly amazing. The second edition of the book comes out at the end of April? The end of April, yes. Are there major differences between the first edition and the second edition other than the international interviews? Yeah, I've really actually gone through the entire book and changed kind of the scope of it. First off, I take myself out of it and say, instead of saying we, I say, say they, and change kind of the way I write about it. Now that I have been doing PhD training, I'm trying to be at a different level the way I talk about it. It's still accessible, but I'm trying also to be a better scholar about it. I've also changed the order so that you can skip around and not have to read about certain parts of it if you don't want to. I've changed the, the one about the ivory tower talking more about media and what's going on in media, and I've updated it. I have an entire chapter interview that I did with Charles Deenan, who was the one that designed the first sound driver in games, and then went and worked with EA Games, and he's the one that changed the whole nature of sound for games to make it very theatrical. And I talk about how you do Foley for games, and then I talk about how Foley is different in animation. So I have those chapters. And then I have a chapter on recipes, on very specific things that you need to do for basic recipes and basic props and things that you need to do in a recipe sort of chapter. And another thing is I've expanded the Foley stage one about all the different ways people have put together spaces for Foley stages in addition to the basic way you do one if you're going to do it the way we do it in Hollywood, I talk about all these alternative ways people have put together stages that are really interesting, including Andy Malcolm outside of Toronto where he's got a farmhouse and he's turned the whole thing into a Foley stage and he's got all sorts of different things he has going on there. I've talked about him because, you know, I thought that might be interesting to you, Tim. Well, it's funny that you bring him up because I'm going out to his studio on Wednesday and he's going to give me a tour. And It's very interesting what he's done there. It's very different. And he does more than just Foley. He calls it all Foley, but basically he, he um, shoots field effects. He does more than just Foley. To him, it's all Foley, but it really isn't because he's also um, doing um, 
fresh sound effects that you would put in a library and cut in. And he does field effects. So he does the whole thing. And he's got a house that's completely rigged to record everything you would ever want. So he's got an amazing thing out there. And so Canada's got quite a resource in Andy. Yeah, he's a great guy for sure. Yeah, so there's that. And um, so it's completely reconfigured. It's more than just an update. It really is a totally reconfigured kind of book. Well, I can't wait to get my hands on it. I devoured the first edition, so uh, I look forward to seeing what's new in the second edition. Yeah, I also did historically how the French history of Foley. I even did um, Serbian history. There's some Serbian history of Foley. I did some stuff on um, other countries, talked about what was going on in Russia. There's some really interesting stuff that happened in Russia with sound that I just had to put in because I thought it was fascinating. So there's some historical stuff that isn't American. The more I find out about what, what has happened with Foley, I'm just going to keep putting new things in and changing it. And someday I want to write a book that's all about um, Foley all over the world, everything, because there's just so much more to say about sound, Foley, and post-production sound all over the world. And so this is what I'm going to be spending the rest of my life doing other than being in the university and teaching people to do this. Thanks again for taking the time to talk to us. It's been amazing. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Adele Young for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. Thanks to Tim for editing the show. You can follow the show at The Tone Benders on Twitter. You can go to ToneBenders.net and leave us a comment or check us out on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ToneBendersPodcast. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Tone Benders. Find us online at ToneBenders.net where you can see our archives and leave a comment or a tip. If you listen on iTunes, please write us a review while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at the ToneBenders or email us at dc, timothy, or renee at ToneBenders.net. 